God the Father is the ultimate witness to the deity of Christ. The supernatural miracles of Jesus Christ are irrefutable evidence that he is God in human form. Welcome to the Manna Bible Lessons Podcast. Manna is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. so kind fellow students turn to your Bibles to John 5. John 5 will pick up the narrative beginning in verse 30. As you know we've been in the study of John for several weeks now. Lord willing several months we'll still be here. There is a lot of meat on this bones shall we say. John stated the purpose for writing the gospel at the very end. John 20 verse 31 he said I wrote the gospel to accomplish two things. One These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John's going to present a great deal of evidence in this gospel, the good news, that Jesus Christ is God, deity. And secondly, he writes to persuade the reader of this gospel that those who believe in Jesus may have eternal life through that faith in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on behalf of the sinner. So, in the first four chapters of this book of John, Jesus is experiencing a very popular following. He's attracting a great deal of attention. He's doing a lot of miracles that demonstrate his deity and bring a great deal of blessing to the nation of Israel. However, in chapter 5, we shift into another sequence. He's now experiencing more opposition from the Jewish religious leaders called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He he heals a paralyzed man on the Sabbath day, and the attacks by the religious leaders begin, and they attack him for breaking their Sabbath, mad-made Sabbath rules. So he uses the opportunity to make a series of very clear statements about himself. If anybody says that Jesus never claimed to be God, you need to turn them to John chapter 5, and he makes quite a number of significant statements about his deity. He basically says, God is my Father, I am the promised Messiah, the one and only God-man. So beginning in John 5, 17, last week we looked at how many different ways Jesus claimed to be equal with God. He claimed to be equal with God in his nature. He claimed to be equal with God in his works. He claimed to be equal with God in his love his knowledge, his authority, his eternal self-existence, his worship, and he claimed to be equal with God in his right to execute judgment of every human being. He claimed that he alone can give eternal life to sinners who place their faith in his payment for their sins. And he summarizes all these claims in verse 30, which is where we're going to begin today, John 9, verse 30. Quote, he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So even though Jesus is God, who came to earth as a human being, while on earth, you will see throughout the Gospels, all of them, he is submissive to his heavenly Father, and he is led by the Holy Spirit in his earthly ministry. He only acts as the heavenly Father commands. He only acts as the Spirit leads, and he says, My words are true because I know the mind of my Father. I know perfectly the mind of my Father because I am God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. So there is no uh, lack of knowledge between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says, not only do I know the mind of the Father perfectly, I do the will of my Father perfectly as well. Now, he knew that the Jewish religious leaders would reject his testimony. He's told them six, seven different ways, I'm equal with God, and he knew they were going to reject him. The Mosaic law required a minimum of two witnesses to establish the truth of any claim. You couldn't just say, blah, blah, blah. There had to be collaborating witnesses, minimum two, 
preferably three, to establish any charge made against somebody in a court of law. God had commanded Moses in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17.6, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness, Deuteronomy 19.15. Not just in death penalty cases, Deuteronomy 19.15 expands that. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So there were strict barriers against one person accusing another person and the court taking one eyewitness and making judgment come to pass on that. There had to be two or three witnesses. So the Lord knew the minds of the Jewish religious leaders, and he preempted their arguments. He says in verse 31, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Now, what he's saying is, if I testify about myself, you won't accept it. He's not saying if I testify about myself, I'm not speaking truth. He's not denying that. He's saying you won't accept it. So I'm going to give witnesses. I'm going to bring witnesses to the table to corroborate my testimony that I am in fact God. And his first witness is Almighty God. Here's the principle. God the Father is the ultimate witness to the deity of Christ. God the Father is the ultimate witness to the deity of Christ. So he lists a witness that he knows the Jews will have to accept. Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the creator God of the universe. Now, since the Jewish law demands more than one witness, God the Father is going to give his testimony regarding the deity of Christ using three avenues, three means, three witnesses. The Father is bringing witnesses to the table to corroborate his son's claim that he, in fact, is God. And those three witnesses are John the Baptist, number two, the supernatural works that God gave Jesus to perform on earth, and number three, the testimony of Scripture, as recorded in the Old Testament, which is utterly interesting because the Jews already agreed with all three of these witnesses. They've already agreed that God spoke through John the Baptist. So Jesus is saying, I'm calling John the Baptist. My father gave John the Baptist his testimony. Number two, the Jews have already declared that Jesus' supernatural miracles prove that God was with him. And the Jewish religious leaders absolutely believe that God was the author of the Old Testament. So they've already affirmed that the witnesses that he's going to bring to document his deity, they accept as true. So Jesus is now going to say, if these witnesses are true, why will you not believe that I am who I say I am the very Son of God. Let's pick up his arguments in verse 33. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the Sadducees. These are the Jewish religious leaders who run the, the nation's religious judicial system. Verse 33. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John the Baptist, was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Here's the principle. God's prophet, John the Baptist, testified to the deity of Christ. God's prophet, John the Baptist, testified to the deity of Christ. Let's think a little bit about John the Baptist. He was the first prophet in Israel in 400 years. God had not spoken through a prophet since Malachi. Now, the U.S. is 250 years old, 1776, right? It's been 400 years since the nation has heard anything from God. It's been silent. John the Baptist was a miracle baby. He was born to Zacharias and Elizabeth. They were both elderly, probably in their 70s, past the age of childbearing. So the fact that he was born was a miracle in itself. Furthermore, he was announced by the angel Gabriel, who came from heaven and told Zacharias, here's the son that's going to be born, and here's his job description before he's born. 
John was called by God to turn the nation of Israel back to the Lord their God as prophesied in Isaiah. So he was the fulfillment of a prophecy that had been made by Isaiah, chapter 40, 700 years earlier. He was to prepare the hearts of Israel so that they would be ready for the coming of the Messiah. That was his job description. And the Gospel of Matthew tells us that when John was baptizing near the River Jordan, great crowds were coming out of Jerusalem, down the hill, confessing their sins, repenting, and being baptized. And the crowds got the attention of the Pharisees. You know, they were the religious leaders, and all these people are going out to the Jordan River to see this prophet, and he's, repent, he's uh, uh, preaching, and they're repenting. So they send a delegation to find out who he is. And they say, are you the Messiah? He says, no. They said, are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet that Moses predicted was going to come in, in Deuteronomy 18? He says, no. So they finally said, well, who are you then? And he says, quote, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That was a direct quote from Isaiah 40. So John is God's prophet anointed by the Holy Spirit to accomplish his purpose of calling the nation back to the Lord. Now, at this point in time, the, Jew, the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, had turned over 400, 500 years the freedom of the Jewish religious system into a man-made morass of rules. It was a man-made rules religion. When we think of the Mosaic Law, what do we think of? The Big Ten, right? The Ten Commandments. That was the summary of the Jewish law, the Mosaic law. God actually gave Israel 613 rules. Much of them were commentary on the Ten Commandments, but if you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 613 rules. Now, over the centuries, the Jewish scribes had written commentary on those rules and explanations of those laws, and they literally added thousands and thousands of new rules and new regulations that you were expected to know and to follow in order to be right with God. And these man-made regulations were treated as equivalent to God's Word. You see a problem with that? Yeah, there's a major problem with that. The common person literally did not even know all the rules, let alone follow them, right? So God sent John to call Israel to repent from their legalistic self-righteousness and turn back to a love relationship with the Lord their God. Many of the Jews at that period thought they were going to heaven simply because they were ethnic Jews. I'm a son of Abraham. Abraham was the chosen one. I'm chosen, I'm going to heaven, and it, my behavior doesn't matter. And John, as you know, confronted them about their sin, and he told them to bring forth deeds that demonstrated their repentance. He told them that the Messiah was coming. He didn't even know who Messiah was at that point in time. But God said, John, I'm going to give you a clue that will tell you who the Messiah is. You are going to see the Holy Spirit come down on somebody like a dove and land on them and descend on them and remain on them. That's the Messiah. So when John was baptizing Jesus in the river, what? Jordan River, Holy Spirit came down, landed on him. John says, that's the Messiah because God told me that was the sign. And immediately, of course, you know the story. Jesus was led into the wilderness for 40 days of temptation, uh, and hunger, fasting, and temptation by Satan. At the end of that 40-day period, he came back into the Jordan Valley and John saw him coming and declared what? Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. That was the public declaration of Christ's ministry. And Jesus here says John was a lamp. Jesus was the light. John was the lamp, someone who pointed to the light. You might recall that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was born in his mother's womb to for the express purpose of illuminating Jesus. All Israel, even the religious leaders, embraced the ministry of John the Baptist, at least for a time. All of them regarded John as a prophet. The common citizen, as a matter of fact, had such high regard for John that later on, 
Jesus asked the Pharisees, do you think the ministry of John was from heaven or from men? And the, Jew, the Pharisees said, well, if we say it's from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, why didn't you believe him then? But if we say he's from men, the crowds are going to stone us because they think he's a prophet. That's how highly John was thought of by the common citizen of Israel. So Jesus says, John the Baptist is my first witness, and he collaborates that I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But, verse 36, the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. Here's the principle. The supernatural miracles of Jesus Christ are irrefutable evidence that he is God in human form. The supernatural miracles of Jesus Christ are irrefutable evidence that he is God in human form. Now, a miracle is a scientifically non-explainable event that transcends the ordinary laws of nature. A miracle is evidence that God's active presence and power is working in human affairs at this point. We use this term miracle lightly. We use it almost for anything we can't understand. Well, it must be a miracle. God uses miracles in Scripture for very specific reasons. He is revealing himself to his people or other people who don't know him. He's revealing his purposes to them by doing things that are unexplainable by natural laws. All miracles in Scripture are signs. They point to the Lord. They point to God. They point to Jesus Christ. They point to his power, and they reveal his love. When Jesus Christ heals the sick, you see the power of God expressed as love toward the sick. And they're designed to strengthen our faith in him, and that's what they were designed to do in the New Testament. Now, John the Baptist did no miracles. His ministry was one of words only as a prophet. Jesus introduces his father's second means of witness, which is supernatural signs and wonders. And that witness is greater than John's. Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, when he first came to Jesus, he said this, John 3, 2. He says, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. How do we know that? Because no one can do these signs, these miracles, these supernatural wonders that you do unless God is with him. So the works that Christ was doing showed that he was God. And we know that was effective on the crowds because John 2.23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. Why? Because they observed the signs that he was doing. So when Christ talks about the works that I do, the works the Father gave me to do. Those are miracles. Those are supernatural signs. Now, there's about 36, I believe, miracles listed in the New Testament. John, at the end of the chapter, at the end of his book, says, there are so many miracles that he did that you could probably fill every book on planet Earth with a list of them. When you read the miracles of Christ and you look at the, what he's doing and how he's doing, you have to be persuaded that illness was just about banished in Israel when he got done because he was healing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds all the time over this three-year period. So these were signs that only God could do. Healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind, commanding nature, raising the dead, casting out demons. Interesting, the demons themselves did what? acknowledged that he was God. They knew him as king, as creator. But the Jewish religious leaders refused to believe Christ came, that he came from heaven and operated under the authority of his heavenly father. Later on in John 10, 25, Jesus answered them and said, I told you and you did not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. These testify of my deity. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, although you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. In other words, 
If you don't believe my claims, look at the data. Look at the evidence. Look at how many people have been healed. Look at how many people have been fed. By the way, Jesus just didn't walk around the nation of Israel randomly doing miracles. They were all pre-planned by God the Father, and the Holy Spirit led Jesus step by step each way he wanted him to go. Remember that when Jesus came to earth, he restricted some of the independent use of his divine attributes, and he only did the works that God led him to do. So he, moment by moment, was led by the Holy Spirit to use his divine power to accomplish the Father's purposes for that day. I don't know if Jesus, Scripture tells us that he was a man of intense and protracted and prolonged prayer. I can only imagine the Holy Spirit during these periods of time says, you're going to run into a blind man this afternoon at 2. You're going to heal him. Jesus didn't have to have divine power. He had divine power, but he only operated under the authority of his Father. And he was led by the Holy Spirit to accomplish those purposes because Jesus often says, the works that the Father gave me to do. He's talking about the miracles that God had prepared for him to do to reveal that, in fact, he was God in the flesh. So John the Baptist, he's put in prison. And he sends some disciples to Jesus and he says, are you really the Messiah? Or should we look for somebody else? Jesus responds to John's request in Matthew eleven four. Jesus answered and said to them, these are John's disciples, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus says, the miracles that I do are witness, are testimony, are evidence of my divine nature. No one but God has the power to overcome sin, sickness, and death. Evaluate the evidence. Consult the eyewitnesses. Interview the people who have been healed. Look at the data. Consult the evidence. He just didn't claim to be God. His claims were backed up with hard, credible, verifiable evidence. Even the Pharisees, who hated him, did not deny that Jesus was performing supernatural signs. Before they crucified him, in John eleven forty seven, a few weeks before that, Jesus is performing miracles. And they consult a council together. And in John eleven forty seven, they're talking to each other. And they say, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. John 12, 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing them. We've talked about, remember, a sign is a pointer. A sign points to something else. When you see a supernatural phenomena occur, that's a miracle that points to the deity of Christ. The Pharisees could not deny the miracles. There were way too many eyewitnesses but they refused to believe that they were done by the power of God. If they acknowledged that Jesus' miracles were done by the power of God, then they would have to what? Submit, worship, follow, believe in him. They refused to do that. And they craved their place of religious authority over the people that weren't going to give that up. So they, since they couldn't deny the supernatural miracles, they claimed that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Satan. So his power to do these miracles came from the devil, not from God. Because if they had to acknowledge they came from God, then Jesus would say, then why do you not believe? Well, they weren't going to believe, regardless of the evidence. You know, it's intriguing. You would think that if someone was performing miraculous signs, that would be an evidence of supernatural power, right? You're doing supernatural miracles. You must have supernatural power. You must be connected with God 
or some supernatural power source. You would think that they would be afraid of doing something to someone who had that kind of power. What makes you think you could kill somebody who could do these supernatural signs? Pharisees didn't bother them at all. They crucified Christ apparently without any guilt. So sign number one, witness number one is John. Witness number two is the miracles of Jesus. By the way, if you want evidence to talk to someone about why Jesus is God, you can certainly talk to them about eyewitness miracles that were done over and over and over again for three plus years. Number three, verse 37. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his word, heard his voice, or seen his form at any time. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. So the third witness to the deity of Christ is the word of God. Here's our principle. God's word validates the deity of Christ through predictive prophecy about his birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and messianic kingdom. Let me say that again. God's word validates the deity of Christ through predictive prophecy about his birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and messianic kingdom. Now Jesus begins by saying, Israel, you leaders, you have not seen God, heard God's voice or seen God's form. Heard means hearing, ears. Eye, sight means seeing eyes. He's basically saying, Israel, you are spiritually deaf and spiritually blind. You have no personal knowledge of God. You have no personal relationship with God. You know about God. You don't know God personally. Since God is spirit, obviously no human has ever seen the Father. But Jesus says, I am the Son of God, and I have a face-to-face -face relationship with my Father, right? I'm intimate with my Father. I have the authority to speak because I know my Heavenly Father. And my Father sent me to earth to redeem humanity from sin and death. The Pharisees rejected both God's Word and God's Son. And Jesus said, if you believed God's Word, you would believe in me because my Father wrote and told you that I was the Son of God and I was coming to earth. Scriptures are loaded with predictive prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. And this word search is interesting. He says, you people, you, you Jewish religious leaders, you search the Scriptures. The search here means to track, to pursue, as in tracking game or stalking game. You're a hunter and you are tracking, pursuing, you are diligently, relentlessly, thoroughly opening God's Word and studying it. No one was more meticulous about studying God's Word than the scribes and Pharisees. They would count the letters, forwards and backwards. They would memorize the text. They actually thought that knowledge of the text would save them. The more knowledge I have of the text itself, the words, the letters, that would grant them eternal life. So they memorized it, they copied it, they taught it, they virtually worshipped it. However, you and I know that simply knowing the truth cannot save you. Satan knows the Bible better than anyone. Correct? It will not save him. Knowledge does not save. Demons know the word of God better than you do. They are not saved. That truth will damn them, not save them, because they've not acted on it. They just know it. The Pharisees knew the truth. What they didn't do is they didn't obey it, because that would require them to renounce their sin of self-righteousness. Remember after Jesus rose from the dead, and he's walking on the road to Emmaus with a couple of disciples. And they're talking, and they say, you know, it's Jerusalem's really been in an uproar. That Jesus, disciple, or uh, master, the Savior, was, uh, was crucified. We had a great deal of hope that he was going to save Israel, blah, blah, blah. And have you heard these things? 
And in one of the greatest understatements of the Bible, the Son of God says, what things? You know, so they go and tell him everything that's gone wrong. Jesus says something fascinating in Luke 24, 25. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Verse 26. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. The Father uses predictive prophecy in the Old Testament to testify about Christ centuries in advance. In Genesis 3, just briefly, he promises what? The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Tell Satan that. In Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that in his family, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses wrote that God's going to raise up another prophet like me, to whom you will listen. He's talking about Messiah. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that from his royal lineage would come the promised Messiah. Isaiah 7 promised the virgin birth. Micah 5 foretold the birthplace of the Messiah would be Bethlehem. Isaiah 52 and 53 foretold Messiah's rejection, suffering, and future glory. Psalm 22 predicted his crucifixion in great detail. Psalm 16 points to his resurrection. Multiple prophets in the Old Testament predicted Christ's future messianic kingdom where he's going to physically rule and reign from Jerusalem on planet Earth. So there is loads of documented predictive prophecies hundreds of years in advance that told Israel and us that Messiah is coming and gave us a great deal about it. You want documentation that Jesus is God? He fulfilled those prophecies. By the way, there's dozens and dozens of prophecies about his second coming that he will fulfill in the same way that he did fulfill the ones that talked about him at his first coming. However, despite all the biblical evidence that they knew and had read and studied, Jesus said to them in verse 40, And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Here's the principle. People reject Christ not because of the evidence, but because they love their sin and refuse to give it up. People reject Christ not because of the evidence, but because they love their sin and refuse to give it up. The religious leaders refused to believe that Jesus was God because if they did acknowledge it, they would have to give up their sin of self-righteousness, they would have to humble themselves and stop oppressing people, and Jesus was exposing their sin for the nation to see. John 3.19, we talked about several weeks ago. This is the judgment that light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. When you talk to some people about Christ, you can talk and you can demonstrate biblical evidence of predictive prophecy. You can talk about supernatural signs and wonders. You can talk about the needs in their own heart that only Jesus can satisfy. And what they'll never tell you is, I love my sin and I ain't giving it up. Whatever the sin is, I have an addiction, I don't want to give up my addiction. Food, sex, booze, drugs, I don't, whatever it happens to be. I have an addiction to my own success. I'm not giving that up. It's really all about me, and I'm not giving that up either. Whatever the sin is. The, the Pharisee's sin was self-righteous pride. The Pharisee's sin wasn't immorality, it was morality. Religious morality. By the way, there's nothing wrong with the morality of Christ that you know, conforms to his character and conduct. The Pharisees believed that their own self-righteous morality would earn them eternal life and save them from God's judgment. Self-righteousness says that my current level of righteousness is sufficient to meet God's standards, and therefore, He has to declare me righteous. I've talked to people that say, well, God has to let me in heaven since I'm a good person. So, well, on what basis do you measure your goodness? You own a home, 
Let's suppose a criminal kicks in your back door and says, I've decided I'm going to live with you for the rest of my life and you have to let me in and feed and clothe me because I've decided I'm a good person. And they whoa, 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 I own the house. And I said, yeah, God owns heaven too. What makes you think you're going to kick the back door into heaven and get in because you think you're good enough? Who owns the house? Whose heaven is it? You meet his standards if you're going to live there forever. In the same way, people don't kick in your back door and say, I'm going to live with you forever because I decided I'm a good person and you owe me. It doesn't work that way. God says what? All of sin, there is none righteous. Human righteousness is like filthy rags. God's standard is moral perfection. And nobody's perfect. That's why we need a Savior whose righteousness is perfect. Verse 41, Jesus says, I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Here's the principle. People reject Christ because they love the approval of people more than the approval of God. People reject Christ because they love the approval of people more than the approval of God. By the way, Jesus did not seek human approval. And he was not accepted or honored by his own people. His goal was the glory of his Father in heaven, not the praise of people on earth. Jesus said, I know you. He's omniscient. He's God. Of course he knows. He knows their things. They're thinking. He knows their innermost motives. By the way, he knows our thoughts and innermost motives as well. And the Pharisees' goal was to know the Scriptures better than anybody so they could use their academic excellence to exalt themselves above everyone else. They didn't study the Scripture to know God and humble themselves before the Lord and rejoice in His love for them. They studied the scriptures to use it like a club to beat other people up and exalt themselves with their great vast store of Bible knowledge. They violated God's foremost commandment, Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, right? The Pharisees were idol worshipers, and their idol was the praise of people. And we live in a culture today who falls down and worships at the altar of the approval of people. How many likes did I get? That's called an idol. Forget about people's opinions. We belong to who? Almighty God. His opinion is the one that counts. If the love of God was in us, and it is, then we should be humble instead of proud. The Pharisees rejected Jesus, who came in the power of the Heavenly Father. They demanded a military Messiah. They said, we want a Messiah that's going to feed us and free us from Rome, and most importantly, a Messiah that will let us stay in charge. We want a God who does what we want to do. We want a God made in our image, as opposed to humbly submitting ourselves to the God who is. See, they wanted the military Messiah, but God sent Jesus to earth to set people free from sin and death, spiritual death, right? In order for Jesus Christ to save people from sin, first he had to confront them with their sin, right? So they could turn away from it and turn to him. You know, if you want to get well, here's a very good start. Stop doing the things that are making you sick. If you're in a hole, rule number one, stop digging Okay? Jesus didn't downplay sin to flatter people and gain a following. Most people, I'm sorry to say, would rather hear comfortable lies rather than convicting truth. That's us, right? Apart from the Holy Spirit. False teachers misdiagnose spiritual problems and they tell their patient that their stage four cancer of the soul is no big deal. There's lots of pastors that will tell you, Eh, you know, God's tolerant, you know, you're okay just the way you are, not what God says. God had a word about false shepherds. He said in Jeremiah 6.14, they, these false shepherds, 
have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. You can't fix dysentery with duct tape or brain tumors with Band-Aids. It doesn't work. Superficial solutions are deadly because they fool us into thinking that structural problems can be fixed with cosmetic solutions. You're not going to fix the Golden Gate Bridge with bailing wire. You're not going to fix the clogged artery with a pocket knife, right? There's an infinite gap between saying, you have peace with God, and the reality of what it takes to make peace with God. What does it take to make peace with God? Sin separates people from God for all eternity. That's not a cosmetic problem. That's a structural problem. Peace with God required that God's Son died in our place to pay the penalty for our eternal sin. So when Jesus came to earth, the reason he didn't have a lot of favor with the Pharisees or with the crowds is he talked about their sin. Because if they disagreed with the diagnosis, they would never embrace the cure. So when we talk to people about Christ, yes, Jesus will give you peace. Yes, Jesus will give you hope. Yes, Jesus will give you assurance but only if you come to him as Savior and Lord in humility first, because he will never let his children sin successfully. Peace with God is not a band-aid, it's heart transplant. We have been given a new heart, yes, a new nature. Jesus said, because you've rejected me, I come in my Father's name, you're going to receive false messiahs, and we know that's true. After Christ uh, uh, ascended, there were multiple false Christs for the next hundred years in Israel led many people to strife. Even worse is that the very end, because they rejected their Messiah, the Jewish people believe Satan's lie and they will accept Satan's man, the Antichrist, as their Messiah. They will believe that the Antichrist is the Messiah. That is the ultimate deception. Now we know at the very end, the Holy Spirit will fall on them, they will repent as a nation, and all Israel will be saved, as in one afternoon. Literally, the nation will be saved. Now the Pharisees compare themselves with others, and they love the praise of people, and they feel quite righteous, but they're using the wrong measuring stick. William Barclay writes in his commentary on the Gospel of John, so long as a man measures himself against his fellow men, he'll be well content. But the point is not, am I as good as my neighbor? The point is, am I as good as God? What do I look like to him? So long as we judge ourselves by human comparisons, there is plenty of room for self-satisfaction. And that kills faith, for faith is born of the sense of need. But when we compare ourselves to Jesus Christ, we are humbled to the dust. And then faith is born, for there is nothing left to do but to trust the mercy of God. See, when you come to Christ, you must come in humility. And the Pharisees refused. They were proud. They rejected Christ who called them out in their sin because he didn't flatter their pride. And that's what they wanted. Jesus described the Pharisees' behavior in Matthew 23, 5. He says, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries, lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place at honor of banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. So they were all about the praise of men instead of the glory of God. They studied the Bible day and night, but they didn't use it to get to know God. They used it as a tool to exalt themselves. The point being, if you care more about what other people think about you than you care about what God thinks about you, you will not follow Jesus Christ. That's just reality. Lastly, verse 45, Jesus said, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Here's the principle. People reject Christ because they refuse to believe everything the Bible says. People reject Christ because they refuse to believe everything the Bible says. See, Moses had prophesied a coming Messiah, and the Pharisees knew it. 
Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. And God says, I'm going to do that, verse 18. I, God, will raise up a prophet from among your countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. The Pharisees knew that because they went and asked John the Baptist, are you that prophet, that, that prophet that Moses talked about? No, that was Messiah, and they knew he was coming. So the Word of God is all about the Son of God. The focus of the Bible is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is a central point of interpretation. Here is why the Pharisees failed, among other things. It is impossible to understand the Scriptures without Jesus Christ being front and center on every page. If you attempt to understand Scripture Without Christ being the central focus, you will misinterpret almost everything about the Scriptures because they are all about the Son of God. The Word of God is to reveal the Son of God. Christ is the lens, the eyeglasses you look at Scripture through. He is on every page. And when you see Scripture through the lens of the Son of God, Things are in focus and you see clearly what God is up to and why he's doing what, you, what he's doing. If you reject Christ like they did, you misinterpret everything the Bible says and you reliably draw wrong conclusions. I mean, when you look at Scripture and everything it says about Messiah's coming, you look and you say, how come they didn't get it? Because they didn't want to. They were willfully blind. Romans 1 has some commentary about people like that. Furthermore, if you don't accept Christ as your Savior, you do not get the Holy Spirit who opens your mind to understand what the Scriptures say. 1 Corinthians 2.14, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Verse 12. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. See, unless the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, we cannot understand what the Bible says. Have you ever in your life read the Bible and not understood what it said? Every day that happens to me. Every day. Every day. And some days, I humble myself, fall on my face, and say, Lord, I don't know what you want me to learn. My brain is not seeing this. Open my eyes that I would see what you want me to see so that I can say what you want said on Sunday and open man's eyes so they will understand what you have to say despite the idiot behind the pulpit, Right? We are utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit to teach us from his word. By the way, he's the author of it, so he's competent to teach us, right? One of the things that we must not do is bring our opinion to God's word and try and shoehorn God's word into what we think it must say. You know, nothing is more interesting than in having a group who hasn't done any study on a particular topic and say, what do you think about this passage? And they will tell you what their opinion of it is. We call that sharing your ignorance. And you've got six people with different opinions. The issue is not what I think about it. The issue is what does God intend to communicate? By the way, he's a pretty good communicator, right? He has the capacity to say exactly what he means, when he means it, and he wants us to comprehend it. So he gives us the Holy Spirit to open our minds to teach us. So as we go through the Gospel of John, we need to remember God has left witness that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. His first witness is God the Father. He's the ultimate witness of the deity of Christ. That's point one. Point two, John the Baptist, God's prophet, testified to the deity of Christ. Number three, the supernatural miracles of Jesus Christ are irrefutable evidence that he is God in human form. One of these days, maybe this afternoon, Lock in an hour and just read a gospel. I mean, you could read Mark in less than an hour. You're going to do something with the hour, right? You might be watching Idiot Box. Read the gospel of Mark this afternoon. 
and just say, Lord, what do you want me to learn from reading the Gospel of Mark? It's short. Number four, God's Word validates the deity of Christ through hundreds of predictions about His birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and messianic kingdom. So you say, well, okay, the first four points are about God, Jesus bringing God as His witness to validate His deity. Got it. Lots of data, lots of evidence. The last three points are why people don't believe it, why they reject Christ. People reject Christ not because of the evidence, but because they love their sin and refuse to give it up. Satan has them conned into thinking that there's more joy in sin than there is in Jesus. That is a lie. Sin will never give you the same joy you have in Jesus. I believe that lie for years. If you just let me do it my way, I'll be happier than doing it your way. That's a lie. You're always going to have more joy when you're in a right relationship with God and doing it His way. Second, people reject Christ. Second reason, people reject Christ because they love the approval of people more than the approval of God. People are not going to like me. People are going to think I'm strange, etc., etc., etc. God's opinion trumps human opinion. And lastly, people reject Christ because they refuse to believe everything the Bible says. This is when they proof text. Well, I like that verse because it talks to me about the God I'm comfortable with. I don't like that text because it talks about God's judgment and I'm not comfortable with that. You know something? You buy it all or you don't buy any of it. You cannot pick and choose what you want. All of Scripture is inspired by God. Yes? How much? All. So read it all. And if you're uncomfortable with it, that's good. It means the Holy Spirit's bringing conviction. Right? You're actually going to learn something. How about that? Amazing. Okay. Thank you so much. You know, John is just rich. There is so much meat on these bones. Thank you for your focus and your, and your concentration. I appreciate you and love you so much. Be back next week and read ahead. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.